Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We continue our study in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 13 through 24. Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 24. Here in this context, Paul will pass by not far from the city of Ephesus, some 30 miles away, and he calls the Ephesian elders to come as he gives them a farewell and he reminds them of some key things, including his own perspective, his own mindset when it comes to ministry. Acts chapter 20, verse 13. The text of Scripture reads, But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following opposite Chios, And the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we are grateful for your precious word. So illumine our minds and convict our hearts and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might come to a greater understanding of what your word would say to us. Transform our attitudes and conform our lives to that of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, goodbyes are never generally easy. People leave for military duty, people leave, students leave for college, relatives leave after visiting, friends move because of employment, teams leave for mission trips, and families move for various reasons. 
And in each of these cases, there are words that are spoken, words of advice, words of wisdom, words of encouragement given and important reminders of things we ought to do. Well, here Paul is about to say his final farewell to the Ephesian elders, a church that he poured his life into, a church that he spent three years with, teaching them day and night, teaching them publicly and in private, working hard so that he wouldn't be a burden to them, and here he gives them a final farewell after three years of ministry in which he saw the inception of a number of churches, the seven churches of the book of Revelation, likely, the church at Colossae. He saw a great number of people come to know Christ. And it says in verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called to himself the elders of the church as he passes by because he was on his way to Jerusalem. He wanted to be there in Jerusalem before the, on the day of Pentecost, if possible, verse 16. And so he sends some able-bodied men while he's sitting there at Miletus. He sends them some 30 miles north to Ephesus so that he can see his friends. One more time. And to say a final farewell. In fact, this is the only speech by Paul to Christians recorded by Luke, and it is fairly long. Though this is a farewell speech, as we will see, part one, next week will be part two. Although this is a farewell speech, he gives to us in this particular section, a really a snapshot of his heart. Because Paul has a deep, deep love for the church, and you'll see that it comes out here. And this is particularly important for all of us as we who serve the Lord to have a proper perspective, whether you're serving the Lord in Sunday school or as a leader of a small group or whatever it is, your desire and your serving of the Lord in ministry, we ought to have the right attitude, the proper attitude when it comes to how we view serving God. Some see serving God as just optional, something if it's convenient, something if it's safe, something if it doesn't require too much sacrifice. Some people say, I'll serve God when I get older, or when I have more money, or when I have more time, or whatever it may be. Some see serving the Lord in positions of leadership as a way to feed their own ego, or to have power, or whatever it may be. Some have said to me in the past, I'll only serve if God, the Lord if I'm paid, unquote. Well, none of these attitudes are attitudes that Paul had. None of these attitudes would be pleasing to God in that we oftentimes use them as merely an excuse. Sometimes we do know and understand that life circumstances prevent us from serving the Lord more in life situations, and we all understand that. But many times it is the heart that is behind it that we see Paul here that we are to emulate, a heart that loves the church, a heart that desires to serve God. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, he told them this. He said, for the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. He loved the Lord Jesus so very much that he could not but help to do that which was to serve God. Many of you are parents, you love your children, and you do great and tremendous things because you love them and you desire to provide for them. You desire to spend time with them because your love for them is deep and it is genuine. And so too, our love for God ought to be the same way in which we desire to serve Him. And so as Paul says his goodbye here, 
his goodbye message to these Ephesian elders, you can see his deep love for the church and the attitudes, the mindset that he has for ministry. The mindset that he has for ministry, particularly in this text from 17 onwards, we see five characteristics. Five characteristics of his heart when it comes to serving God. Five characteristics of his heart, of his mindset when serving God. And the first we find in verse 19. That is with humility. With humility. Serving the Lord with all humility. Here was the great apostle Paul He already planted a number of churches. He's already experienced far more than any other Christian probably up to that time, having been used of God in extraordinary ways. And he says this, he was serving the Lord with all humility. Under constant attack, under constant criticism, under those who have been jealous of him by the Jews, many who wanted to take his life, here was Paul, a gifted man, a brilliant man, a man who would stand in Acts 17 before the philosophers of Athens to the greatest minds that were there, the most erudite, and be able to expound upon who God is and what he has done. Courage. But he didn't present to them his resume. He didn't present to them and say, look at all that I've done. Look at all the books that I've written. Look at all the, the churches that I've planted. Look at all the people who have come to Christ because of the things I've done. It wasn't upon his own oratory skills or upon his own resume. It wasn't upon his cleverness of words. That's way he writes to the Corinthian church. He said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he goes on in verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 2 to say, So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In other words, Paul knew that all that had happened, all the churches that were planted, all the people that had come to know Christ, all the miracles when people touched his robe, when they had handkerchiefs that healed them, it was not because of him. He knew that it was God who did all of these things. It was the power of God as God used him. It was God who changed hearts and drew them to himself in repentance and faith. It wasn't because of his slick speeches. It wasn't because he was so intelligent. No, it was because of the grace of God. And so he says here that he served God in humility. He served God in humility because it is God who causes the growth. It is God who causes the growth. And it was Paul who reminded the Philippians of this attitude of humility too. It was Paul who wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 that very, very famous, well-known passage about Christ. And in chapter 2 of Philippians verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not look out merely for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, that passage reminds us of two characteristics of the humble person. The first is that they are not self-centered. They are not self-centered. They are selfless. They 
think about the interests of others. They think about serving other people. They think about others' needs. They think about how other people are doing. They are thoughtful. You can often tell whether or not a person is self-centered or not simply by listening, listening to how they talk and what they talk about. Maybe they simply talk a lot about themselves about their interests or their accomplishments, as opposed to asking questions about you, what you're interested in, the things that you have been doing. Some people rarely ask questions about others. They rarely ask questions about how you're doing. Some are very poor listeners because they are self-centered. The people who are humble, the passage in Philippians tells us, Regard one another as more important than themselves. And when somebody regards somebody else as more important, that often draws their curiosity to how they're doing and how, what they're going through and what they are learning or whatever it may be. The humble person is not self-centered. Secondly, the humble person sees their own sin as worse than the sins of others, oftentimes. More frequently, the humble person sees their own sin as worse than the sins of others. When Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was a young pastor who became the pastor of Ephesus. See, Paul planted Ephesus, then came Apollos who pastored the church at Ephesus, and then Timothy. Young Timothy, who was his protege, he comes and he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He saw himself as the foremost of sinners. He saw himself, the great apostle Paul, who by that time would have had seen many churches planted, many people had come to repentance and faith, many miracles having been done through the power of God as God used him, and yet he says, I'm the foremost of all. So, when there's a conflict... Are you focused on your own sin? When there's an argument, when there's a fight, do you see your own sin first? Do you see how you have perhaps contributed to whatever situation it may be, or are you fixated on the fact that they are wrong and I'm right? The person who is humble is often slow to be judgmental because they see the log that is in their own eye rather than the splinter that is in the other person's eye? How do you respond when there is conflict? How do you respond to personal offenses, personal criticism? Do you respond like the self-righteous Pharisee that says, why, I'm glad I'm not like them? Or do you see yourself as the sinful publican, the penitent publican who beat his own chest and asked God, God, have mercy on me? That's how we tell how humble we are. We readily admit our own faults. We accept our own responsibilities. When we have contributed, we do that, or do we quickly blame others, seeing their sin above our own? Are we more self-centered? Are we more self-interested when we serve? What's our attitude? What's our attitude? The first attitude Paul exemplifies here as he states to the Ephesians, elders, serving the Lord with all humility. And then he exemplifies and reminds them of his self-sacrifice, of his self 
sacrifice. Verse 19, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Soon after Paul's conversion, he began to face opposition. Right after he was converted, he began preaching Jesus as the Son of God. And when he began preaching that, the Jews plotted to kill him. Chapter 9, verse 20 and 23. Then, soon after that, we see that he faced opposition in Cyprus. He faced a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Pisidian Antioch, it says in 1345. The Jews saw the crowds. They were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken, spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And then city after city after city, whether it's Iconium or Lystra or Thessalonica, Berea, in Corinth and Ephesus, the sad story of Jewish hostility continued to be repeated. From the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey to Jerusalem, he had witnessed Jewish plots to take his life. And when he arrived there, he would still face more Jewish opposition in Jerusalem. What Ananias said to Paul early on in chapter 9, verse 16, I will show him, he said about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I've thought to myself, I wonder how many people would desire to go into the full-time ministry, to go into the mission field, to go in other countries if it meant genuine physical suffering, if it meant that they would be ill-treated, if it meant that they would have few possessions, if it meant that they would have no family life, if it meant that ministry would be filled with, as it says here, tears and trials with their very life on the line, I wonder how many people would raise their hand and say, I'll go. As Isaiah said, here am I, send me. How many people would long to know, as Paul writes in Philippians 3.10, to know the fellowship of his sufferings? As you probably know, in the news this past week, North Korea has been in the news because of their repeated missile tests and their threats against the United States. And they've been pegged many times, many years, by, the, by IDOP or persecution.org as the most oppressive country in the world towards Christianity. People there suffer, they are oppressed. Those that defy the government are either killed or sent to a prison camp to do hard labor. And so few people venture into North Korea because of the danger of being taken captive, being tortured, being killed, especially if you're a U.S. citizen. But it's a country in great need of the gospel. Some of the details of the following account are a bit unclear to me in terms of the timeline, but the gist of the story and the account is accurate that Noel Jesse Heineken writes in the book Unchained about a man named Shin. In 2005, his full name is Shin Dong Hyuk. He became the only person ever to escape from what was called a total control zone internment camp in North Korea and live to tell the tale. Because he was born, you see, into the prison, he knew no other life. In his mind, the entire world was camp number 14. He was later moved to a less strict camp. But to him, being born into a North Korean internment camp, he only knew of two types of people in the world. There were prisoners and there were guards. You were born 
either as a prisoner or born as a guard. You lived your entire life that way. And he says that he never considered escape because he had always assumed that the society outside the camp would be similar inside the camp. He knew nothing different. Every single day, he was told what to do, and he did it. For 23 years, he was always hungry, tired from daily hard labor. But he said that everything changed one day. There was a new prisoner who was brought to the camp. And he came with tales of a different world outside of the electric fence. He talked about living in cities, traveling in China. But one particular thing that he talked about that defined freedom for Shin, in his mind more than anything else, was broiled chicken. Park told him that outside the electric fence was another world where you could eat broiled chicken and you could eat it any time you wanted to. He had never eaten chicken, but he knew what chicken tasted like. That was freedom. And so he and Park decided, Chin and Park decided to escape one day over that electrified fence. The man who had told him about broiled chicken, he went first, he touched the fence, and immediately an untold number of volts coursed through his body and, of course, constricted his heart, and he died. But his body became the bridge over which Shin was able to climb over that fence to freedom. As I mentioned, he became the only person to ever escape from a total control zone internment camp and live to tell the story. He's no longer a prisoner. He's an outspoken advocate against that country. He lives now in South Korea. He eats broiled chicken when he wants to. And he talks about, of course, not only his freedom, but he is a Christian now. He was purchased by a friend who gave his life for him. How many would ever choose to suffer internment and death if it meant that one person would be able to taste true freedom, freedom and salvation? Would we ever be willing to follow God even if it meant suffering so that others might be saved? Would you be willing to surrender your lifestyle to move to a a mission field where many unreached people are? Paul would. Paul did. He lived a life of humility. He lived a life of self-sacrifice. Thirdly, he lived a life of courageous proclamation. Courageous proclamation, verse 20. He reminds the Ephesian elders how I did not shrink, did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't shrink back. It means to withhold. It means to draw back. He didn't withhold from them anything that was profitable. He told them everything. What is profitable? 2 Timothy, when Paul writes to him, 2 Timothy tells us all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He taught them the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, which we'll see next week. 
And it was in a variety of contexts, it tells us, from house to house, meaning small groups to large groups. He went from places that were public to places that were private. He went in various contexts of various groups of people, I'm sure, young and old, and he would tell them about the truth of the Word of God, withholding nothing that was profitable. You see, some preachers admire those who are on the circuit, who are well-known, and they desire to climb into a pulpit to be up front, and then they hide the rest of the week. Some will only have a minimum number of people before they teach or preach rather than ministering to groups of all sizes. Paul ministered in all contexts, in formal, informal, formal context, informal context, times of teaching, times in public, times in private. He taught them wherever there was a venue, and God gave him an opportunity And to whom? It was to Jews and to Greeks. Basically, everyone. Anyone who was not a Jew was considered a Gentile or a Greek. And he told them about what? The gospel, the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He called people to salvation, a message of repentance and faith. Repentance means turning from sin to God. It means you're going one direction and you, by God's grace, turn and go the other direction. He wasn't telling them a message of, well, just believe these set of facts and you'll be saved. You don't need to turn your life around. Nor was he telling them, merely have a change in your mind about sin. Genuine repentance is followed by genuine action. Genuine repentance is a gift of God that God grants so that we are able to make that turn. It is not some sort of legalistic work. It is that which God gives, enabling us to turn to follow Him. And it takes courage, doesn't it? It takes courage to tell people that they are sinners, that they need to turn from living the way that they're living to living for God. And wherever Paul went, ever since the very beginning of his ministry, he walked around with a huge target on his back from the Jews who wanted him dead. Everywhere he went, he would begin preaching the gospel and people who were selling artifacts of idols or those who are making a profit off of some area of sin, he angered them. There were mob riots, there were posses after him, there were people who blasphemed, spoke out against God. He didn't say to himself, oh, you know what? I seem to be offending Jews in every city I go. Maybe I better try a different tact. Or I make them angry. That's not very effective. In fact, it makes them pull away when I share the gospel. Maybe I'll just not say anything. Or if I share my faith, he didn't say, you know, I'll I'll offend people, so I just won't say a word. There's more fear in some Christians' eyes than courage and boldness. Paul proclaimed the truth. He shared the gospel with boldness because he saw the greatest need in their life, which was that of Christ Jesus and the salvation they needed, and that was very well worth the offense that the gospel would bring. His mindset was that of humility. His mindset was that of self-sacrifice. His mindset was that of courage. And fourthly, his mindset was following God despite suffering. Following God despite suffering. Verse 22, now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying what? That bonds and afflictions await me. He was bound by the Spirit. The Spirit of God impelled him. He was led by the Spirit of God. He believed God wanted him to go, not knowing what would happen to me there. He was led by faith, not by fear. Some people, when you even travel, you need to know all the details about your future. Where you're going to go, how you're going to pay for this, where you're going to stay, what you're going to do. You've got to have everything. It's so hard for some to play things by year. Unless they know everything, they become worried, they become anxious, they become uptight, they become upset. Sometimes it paralyzes people, the fear of the unknown. For some people, this phrase, going, not knowing what will happen to me there, is a showstopper. They would never do that, they'd say. It's a paralyzing idea to some. You're going to go off to the field? You're going to go on this mission trip, and you're not going to know what's going to happen to you, except that you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have hardship. Rather than succumbing to fear, Paul followed the Lord in faith. He knows that suffering awaits him, and he's driven by the Spirit of God to go. Why? Because even though he doesn't know, he trusts in a God who does know. He trusts in a God of all wisdom, and he is willing to sacrifice his own life despite the suffering that he would have. For some, suffering for the gospel is certainly not worth the self-sacrifice. After all, they would rather choose the American dream than the dream of the gospel reaching the world. There's a true story of a couple in Washington, D.C., in the book, The Benedict Option, where they approached their pastor asking him to help their college student daughter. The college student daughter felt a calling to be an overseas missionary. So they came to their pastor, and the pastor said, that's wonderful. They said, oh no, you must understand. We want you to help us talk her out of ruining her life. That's a sad perspective, isn't it? Certainly one that the Apostle Paul didn't have. He lived a life of self-sacrifice because of the gospel. Completely different than missionary Karen Watson, who had counted the cost of following Jesus. That's why she left a letter with her pastor before she left to Iraq to serve people in the name of Christ. She was gunned down in that country. She came to serve, and the letter began, quote, you're only reading this if I died. And it included a lot of gracious words for friends and family. And the simple summary of following Christ, quote, To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. To glory my reward. How many of us would have written those words or even accepted them from your son or your daughter before they would leave to the Middle East? It reminds me, a long time ago, 
And I've shared this before about how I was at Mission Fest up in Vancouver. I was late for a particular workshop I wanted to go to, and I ended up at another workshop. It was on risk management in the mission field. And the room was packed. And I remember the question that was posed to the entire crowd. And the speaker said, imagine that you're a part of a mission committee. And somebody wanted to go to the mission field. They applied knowing more than likely they would die for the sake of the gospel. How many of you would send them? Somebody in the back, as the groups, small groups, they had us discuss in these small groups. Somebody in my group, I remember, we were standing there in the back, and there were probably about six or seven of us. And there was a mother in our group who began to cry. And someone said, raised their hand in the back, and they said, you know, it used to be that missionaries would pack things in coffins, knowing that they wouldn't return. They would send and go overseas. The mother who began to tear up in our group, she said to all of us, she was much older than us, and she said, you don't know what it's like to lose a child. And I could tell that she had probably lost a child on the mission field. And as he asked each of the groups, the speaker, what they would do, each group had discussed among themselves, and each group would raise their hand and say, we would send them, we would send them, we would send them, we would send them. And the mother in my group said she would send her child as well. Because why? The gospel is worth the sacrifice that people would come to know Christ and we would send them. And I've sat in groups where people would be off to the mission field knowing that they would likely face extreme persecution and maybe even lose their life. I still remember one couple when I was in seminary, they sat there in a group, we were, I think it was the book of Acts, and we were, they were talking about how they had all prepared, they were going to go, and they were going to go and serve in the Middle East, and they were not expecting to return, they would have this perspective, we're preparing for our own death. That was Paul's mindset, to sacrifice his own life in order to follow God. Fifthly, not only did Paul go with an attitude of humility, a attitude of self-sacrifice, an attitude of proclaiming the gospel, of following God despite suffering, and fifthly, he said this, that of faithfulness before self. Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. How did Paul look at his own life? He said this in his priorities, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. 
I do not consider my own life as account of anything dear to myself in comparison to the work of the ministry. He was fully committed to the ministry of the gospel and there wasn't anything more important than the ministry of the gospel. He died to self. He wanted to surrender himself to Christ and with that singular vision and focus, everything was for the sake of the gospel. His attention wasn't divided. His heart wasn't divided. He was sold out for the ministry. And to the Apostle Paul, it wasn't a job. It wasn't something that he did only when he was young. He didn't say, oh, this is a season. I'm looking forward to retirement. He didn't look at his self-interest, selfish gain, pleasure, or anything of that. It was all eclipsed by his love for Christ and the gospel ministry. Some of you perhaps have seen that movie called Hacksaw Ridge, produced just at the end of last year. It was, in a, it was a movie about a true story, Private Desmond T. Doss. And this individual, Private Desmond Doss, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor despite the fact that he refused to bear arms in World War II. He was a Christian, and he didn't believe, which was his conviction, about touching a weapon or working on the Sabbath. But he believed in the cause, and so he enlisted in the army as a combat medic. Enlisted in the army as a combat medic, but he vowed not to kill. That was his conscience. And so the army wanted nothing to do with him after they found out that he was a sort of a conscientious objector who wanted to be a medic. His fellow soldiers really gave him a hard time. They considered him a pest. They questioned his sincerity. They would say things like, well, don't depend on him to be next to you. They threw shoes at him while he prayed. His captain, superior officer, tried to get him transferred. In the documentary, his own captain said, don't ever doubt my... Uh, Doss told him, his captain... Don't ever doubt my courage, because I will be right by your side saving life while you take life. What happened was that in 1945 in Okanagua, Doss's company, they faced this task, and they were supposed to climb this steep, jagged cliff, sometimes called Hacksaw Ridge, to a plateau. And on that plateau, they were to take that plateau where thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers were waiting for them, and they had this net up, this net that would go up the side of the mountain, and it was treacherous. And so, of course, the soldiers tried to scale and tried to take that ridge. They were driven back. They were driven back. Many ran and retreated back down to the lower part. But Doss, he stayed up there because many of the soldiers were wounded. And he crawled on the ground, even though there were explosions, even though there was gunfire. He was the last one up there. And he crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier, and he jimmied up this sort of this rig, tying a rope around their broken bodies, but these soldiers who were still alive. And he lowered them down to the medics below, who had no idea that he was still up there, but they would see these men in ropes being lowered down. And in the movie, as well as the documentary, Doss would say that he would pray, 
I was praying the whole time. I just kept praying, Lord, please help me get one more. Lord, please help me get one more. One after another. No one else was up there. All the men had retreated. The only people who were up there were those who were wounded, who couldn't help themselves. Carl Bentley, who was also at Hacksaw Ridge, said, it's as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. And he solo saved 75 men, including his captain, who tried to have him transferred, serving and pulling men off that cliff for a 12-hour period. The same soldiers who had shamed him, who had beat him, who had mocked him, now praised him, saying, quote, he is one of the bravest persons alive. And Glover, his captain, said, and then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing. He was a Christian who had chosen and vowed not to kill. He saved 75 men's lives. But I do not consider my life as any account as dear to myself so that he might, what, save person after person after person. That same commitment was really evident in the heart and life of a man named James Calvert. He was a young pioneer missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands. And on the ship and route there, the captain of that ship, who was helping James Calvert get there, he was a rather humane man. He tried to dissuade James Calvert he cried to him in desperation. He said, you, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages, unquote. To which James Calvert said calmly, we died before we came. We died before we came. So the question is, have we died to ourself? Have we died to ourself and surrendered all to Christ are we willing to surrender all for the sake of the ministry, or is it life really about my agenda first, my plans for my life first? Then we think to ourselves, that's God's will for me. But can you say, verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I love this verse of scripture. It's framed and sits behind my desk in my office in nice calligraphy because that's my desire. I struggle like anyone else, but we are given one life to live, one singular life. And every minute of every day that we live is a minute that we can redeem for the glory of God or waste that will never be regained. Will we be able to say in selfless service, but I consider my life no account as dear to myself so that the gospel might progress? The mindset of a Christian who is fully committed, fully serving the Lord has a mindset of humility. Is humble, has a mindset of self-sacrifice, has a mindset of courageous proclamation of the gospel 
in the face of opposition, has the mindset of following God, even though it may mean suffering because the desire is that I might experience the fellowship of his suffering, to be able to say, I want to be faithful to the call before my own self. Can we say that? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we pray, Lord, that we might die to ourselves. Just as James Calvert said en route to the Fiji Islands. Lord, that we might be used of you to shine brightly for your glory. Often, Lord, it is the wick that is trimmed that burns so much more brightly. We pray, God, that we might burn for you, that you would use us despite the difficulties that we may face. May we open our mouths to share of the good news of Jesus to whomever you bring. Grant to us courage. Grant to us power by your Spirit. And may we in humility be able to say how great is our God. In Jesus' name, amen.